1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Please join me in welcoming Phyllis Blackley!
3: They say that women are like tea bags. You don't know their strength until they get into hot water.
4: We need to talk about the threat
5: of the women's liberation movement. So let me be clear. I am not against women working outside the home. That's their choice what i am against is a small elitist group putting down homemakers they want to create a sex neutral society which will mean that women are going to find themselves with two full-time jobs so you need to tell your
0: senators you want them to vote no on this equal rights amendment so we can have a country that we are proud to leave our
4: daughters Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson.
3: And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic, Richard Lawson.
4: So right now we are in a funky little time in Still Watching where we are covering the end of Westworld and beginning of Mrs. America. So this is the second episode we're recording covering Mrs. America, but we are talking about the fourth episode of the Mrs. America season titled Betty. So if you're not caught up to the episode titled Betty, episode four, uh, which should be available for you, FX on Hulu, uh, you might want to press pause and catch up. But our first episode that we recorded last week covered episodes one through three. And that and was now Fred, we're
3: Barney, Wilma. <laughs> and now we're in Betty.
4: Alice, Ted. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we covered those episodes last week. We have a little bit more space this week to go a little bit more in depth in the episode since we don't have to cram three episodes worth of discussion into one podcast episode. We can spend a more leisurely uh episode discussing Betty and everything that happens therein. Just in case you're joining us for the first time, what we do when still watching is we break down the latest episode of some television show that we're watching kind of obsessively right now. We are currently obsessed Mrs. America, uh, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, corrections – we didn't get any corrections last week, but also we didn't have a chance to say much last week uh, – you can email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. I'd also love to hear from people's experiences. One of the coolest things um I ever did to learn about sort of the feminist movement at this time is – when I was in my early 20s, uh, I was in a book club with my a, a bunch of my friends from the same age. And then one of my friend's mom and like all of her friends. So it's this, you know, dual generational book club. I know it was a very cool early 20-something to be in this book club. But we read uh Joan Didion's White Album and there was actually like kind of this angry argument between the generations about – you know, feminism and what the younger g- generation takes for granted and stuff like that. And it's, it's this conversation that is always stuck with. Me. So I'd love to get some feedback from, from folks who are maybe a little older than Richard and I are and who lived this movement and, and were on the ground and, and have some firsthand experience that we are, you know, completely um, ignorant about. And I would love to hear from people younger than us who are coming to some of this, maybe with even fresher eyes than, than we have. And I would just, I'd love to hear from everyone. So still watching pot at gmail.com. com. On this episode of the podcast, we will be hearing from, uh, two actresses on, from the show. We have interviews with Rose Byrne, who plays Gloria Steinem, and Tracy Ullman, who plays Betty Friedan. So you will hear both from both of them later on in this episode. But first, Richard, you and I are going to talk about Betty. Um, I loved this episode. I mean, I'm, I've loved every episode that I've watched so far, but, uh, there is so much going on in this episode and it starts with this really smart, fr- well, it starts with, um, the historical framework is January 1973, uh, and Roe v. Wade. And that being this big step forward in this movement, in this fight, particularly as it pertains to Gloria Steinem, uh, you know, who we explored in, in the episode Gloria you know how how does this land for you Richard um this immediate historical like huge seminal historical context for this episode
3: um i mean it it's interesting because it's such a big deal and it's something that is still being you know bitterly fought over now and it's not an afterthought in this episode but it's just kind of the backdrop because this whole season is about the ERA versus the fight um Specifically in the courts with Roe v. Wade. Um, but it's just crazy to think, you know, um, I think in an, in an earlier episode, uh, it's in the lead up to the 1972 presidential election and you hear about Watergate happening and you're like, right, Watergate, the break-in happened before the election and then he was elected, uh, Nixon was re-elected and, and to think that the ERA was being fought for while Roe v. Wade is, you know, in the courts, like, it's just crazy, like, how much history was happening at the same time, I guess, because I think, you know, from the lens of the of the present day, it can seem like it's all plotted neatly on a on a timeline, where everything had its own discrete moment. And, you know, they informed each other these events, but they weren't happening, you know, concurrently. And yet, here we are getting that exact, um, you know, scene.
4: Right. And so that's, that's sort of the span we're looking at. We're looking at January 1973. And then the debate that happened at, um, in Illinois was May 1973. So that's sort of like the time frame that we're dealing with here. And, um, the other sort of cultural framing, the really smart cultural framing for this episode is it opens with Betty, Betty Friedan and her friend Natalie played by the great Miriam Shore um, watching an episode of Mary Tyler Moore. I watched so much Mary Tyler Moore growing up. Did you watch uh mary richard
3: that was not one of my household shows no i mean i was into shows of that era particularly the brady bunch uh, which was a much more uh uh let's say cleaned up version of of that time and place but um i have gone back and seen episodes as a grown-up and um it's it was such a sharp, you know show for any era but particularly that era you know with the women's lip movement um, really. am uh, Reaching a kind of zenith, um, it feels like maybe it wasn't on purpose part of that movement, but definitely became an emblem of it. I mean, just even like the theme song.
4: One of my favorite stories around the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, and this is relevant to to the entire episode, um, is that um mary tyler moore the actress was before she she had her own show mary tyler moore um she was on uh the dick van dyke show she played uh laura rob's husband on the dick van dyke show so she was like she's a sitcom wife and then this new show that that came on after after that after the dick van dyke show is over you know she gets her own show and she's playing mary and the original premise for the mary tyler moore show was um that Mary was a divorce, a freshly divorced woman coming to the city to, to, you know, to try to support herself and start a career. Um, and the network brass at the time insisted that, um, she not be a divorcee because they were afraid that American audiences would think she had divorced Dick Van Dyke. And so they were like, even though Laura, um, Laura Petrie and, and Mary Richards are two different people, they were like, America won't like it. She can't be a divorcee. She has to be like a single woman. So she wound up like a, you know, an older single woman. And, um. It's
3: like the Brady Bunch, how they couldn't have the parents be divorced. So they're both, um, you know, a widow and a widower. Widows. And they never address <laughs> yes. the fact that these kids have like lost a parent. <laughs> each <laughs>
4: like, that they're never mentioned It's never mentioned yeah it's, yeah. True. yeah it's true but the big the big framing device of the of the episode is this idea of like mary tyler moore and then her friend rhoda morgan stern played by the great valerie harper and like valerie harper is this gorgeous woman but at the time it's this idea that like mary is this like g- you know glamorous waspy single and that you know um rhoda morgan, morgan stern is this like you know jewish like Quote unquote, like, more desperately single friend of hers, which is ridiculous when you look at Valerie Harper. And then eventually, Rhoda was so popular, she gets her own show in, um, 1978, but, but at this point, she's still Mary's upstairs neighbor. And there's this great moment at the beginning of the episode when, um, when Betty points out, she's like, oh yeah, no, Mary never goes to Rhoda's apartment. And it's just this whole, this whole dichotomy of like, okay, Gloria Steinem is the Mary and Betty is the Rhoda. And that's, that's the roles that they've been assigned, uh, in this movement. And, um, I just thought that that was a really clever way to, to frame what will become this episode long, season long conflict between these women.
3: Well, and, and movement long. I mean, you know, I think that it's interesting to see these things happen in, uh, the show's version of real time. Um, you know, these kind of intra, movement conflicts and um, the idea of of you know okay well this older generation helped but how much do we listen to them and how much do we kind of pay them um, you know reverence but because some of their ideas are a little bit fussier and crustier than ours are um, you know I think p- people now would say that about Gloria Steinem and and so I think it's it's good and important that the show is introducing or, or further exploring that kind of you know, half generational dialogue, um, where, you know, you know, I see that a lot, you know, in, in the gay rights rights movement now where, um, no one, well, a lot of people don't seem to appreciate exactly how we got to the point we are while at the same time, it's important to recognize that we think about things differently than, um, you know, people in the movement did 40 years ago.
4: Exactly. And I mean, The micro-generational aspect of Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, like, because the the Feminine Mystique comes out in the sixties, and, um, you know, we're, we're right at the beginning of the seventies, so it's only been a few years, and yet Betty Friedan is relegated to, like, mother of the movement, a phrase that she roundly rejects, obviously. Um. But yeah, this whole idea I've been watching, I've been trying to like sort of uh, you know, bone up on some supplemental material and I was watching this great documentary that's on um HBO from a, a few years ago uh called uh Gloria in Her Own Words, the 2011 uh Gloria Steinem documentary and um Gloria Steinem, you know, in that documentary, is talking about how, you know, the perception of the women's movement, and and the show has already, you know, touched on this several times. Perception of the women's movement, um, and not just the second wave feminists, but the suffragettes, is that, you know, they are like musty fusty uh like desperate women who can't get a man and so they've you know they become uh, libbers. um which i love the way they use libbers as this like bad word um in this show and i mean i don't it sets my teeth on age but it's very very effective and um and gloria Steinem in that documentary she goes um to, you know, she's like, I, I was the same way. I thought of suffragettes as boring sexless creatures. And then she said to do that is one way to stop the movement. So because I was obviously none of those things, maybe I helped to break a false stereotype. So it's this idea that like Gloria Steinem's beauty and her glamour this is this was like in the very first episode, um, Sarah Paulson's character, Alice and uh, Phyllis are like the other woman I understand, but Gloria Steinem, she's so pretty. Why is she a feminist sort of thing? And, um, so this idea that her beauty is being weaponized to sort of help, um, break, because that's just a way to, to, yeah, to shut down the movement is to say, Oh, well, they're just sad because they can't get a man. And Gloria Steinem's like, Oh, I can get so many men. It's fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Um, but that the way in which her beauty and her glamour, are weaponized for good but then also in this episode you weaponized against her
3: yeah yeah and I, and I, you know i think the thing that we see um with steinem uh from her perception from outside of the movement is that kind of frustrated well but I, I don't i just don't understand why would she want that you know and i think that this is really about uh and what friedan tries to do in the debate with schlafly toward the end of this episode is try to you know, explain that, that, that that there's not really a binary that the feminist movement is working with, you know, it's, it's not either, or it's all things. And I think that people on Schlafly's side, like really have a hard time seeing it that way because they've set up that kind of system for themselves. And I think it's interesting to watch that work as an effective tool, um, to some extent, but also because it's not absolutist in its ideology, it's not be pretty and not feminist and and have men or not, or the opposite, you know, it's a lot, it's a, it's a variance. It, that, that kind of vagueness can work against the movement. Um, as we see in this episode,
4: another thing to say about, um, The historical framing of Roe v. Wade, which, you know, uh, we see as a huge step forward for the feminist movement, but it's also in its own odd way, a huge step forward for Schlafly and her movement, because the robing past prompted like evangelicals, church leaders who, uh, you know, before might have wanted to stay out of politics to rush into the political landscape and start fighting um, the feminist movement uh, because of Roe v. Wade. And so it's just one of those things that sort of pushed. It's so, it's so incredible to watch these echoes of our current, um, you know, it's just same as it ever was, right? Phyllis sees this as this huge defeat, but it might have in fact been the thing that really helped her, for at least a major thing that really helped her in the end.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think that there is a, a an important difference to be made between Roe v. Wade and you know the hoped for passing of the ERA. You know, we get the update at the top the top of the episode that 30 out of the 38 required states have ratified it and you know if the 38 do then it becomes part of the constitution. Um whereas Roe v. Wade was a court decision. And you know a lot of people who um on either side have have strong feelings about the Uh, it's better to pass things legislatively than have a court decide it because if a court decides it, then it can always be blamed on this narrow group of nine people uh, or five people who voted for it versus – it seeming to have the the kind of sweeping legislative wave of, you know, a populist wave to get passed, And I think we still, you know, again, with the gay rights, um, we see that with the gay rights movement where, you know, um, DOMA was struck down in the courts and thus gay marriage was made, you know, legal around the country. And some people say, but that's tenuous because then all you have to do is get one court to overturn it and then it's over, you know. Um, so I think it's interesting that they set up b- both of those things and we know which one lasted thus far which is Roe and the one that never even passed, which is the RA. So I think it's, it's presenting a pretty complicated political, um, you know, strategy, I guess.
4: The, um, the conversation between Betty and, and her friend, uh, at the beginning here also touches on some, some swings that the various women involved in the movement took at each other in the press. Betty for Dan did take some swipes at Gloria Steinem and, and Bella Abzug in the press. And then, uh, Nora Ephron wrote this pretty, poisonous takedown of Betty Friedan um, in Esquire. Nora was a columnist in Esquire at the time. And um, I was able to find that story um it's in a collection of uh Nora Ephron's uh work it's in a it's in a Nora Ephron sort of column collection called Crazy Salad Some Things About Women and Scribble Scribble Notes on the Media um and there's a piece she wrote called Miami that she wrote in 1972 um that's all about the sort of Betty and Gloria divide and Yes, she does sort of, uh, in her own way, allude to Betty as, as the wicked witch of the West and, and Gloria as Glinda. Um, and she says this thing, but she's, it's, it's, it's more sympathetic to, um, to Betty than I would have guessed having watched this episode. But also, if I were Betty Friedan and I read that, I probably would have the same reaction this Betty in this episode has to it. Um, but there's a line in it where it says, uh, where Nora Ephron writes, it's her baby, damn it, her movement, speaking of Betty. It's Betty's baby, damn it, her movement. Is she supposed to sit still and let the beautiful thin lady run off with it? Which is, once again, that sort of, like, Mary Tyler Moore, Rhoda Morgenstern, like, divide there of of these two figures. And also, like, she describes... Betty just being like on uh, uncomfortable and on the outside. And Tracy Ullman, I think does such a good job encapsulating that in this party scene that we see where she's just like off to the side, eating food while watching, you know, these other women have an easier rapport with each other at this party.
3: Yeah. I, I you know, Tracy Ullman has long been a favorite of many, including myself um, because she would, you know, she had these great sketch shows where she played, you know, an Anna DeVere Smith level of characters, um, you know, from made up people to real people. Um, she's a, she's an, um, a genius at, you know, aping tone or cadence or whatever, just to get, you know, at the heart of a person that she's playing. Um, but it's really fun on the, on the occasion that she gets to, to just see her and yes, she is playing a real person, but like she's also just playing a, character i mean she's acting you know like it's a full-fledged funny serious kind of thing and i think she i mean not that she needed to rise very far given her stature but you know she she meets the occasion i think quite well um and it's i'm really glad that they devoted an episode uh specifically to her even though you know it's her storyline it's not the only one in the episode
4: Yeah, this, the way that, um, this season is structured in that it highlights various women while still having room for all the other women, I think is really, really masterfully done. And, and the timing of when to highlight them, you know, like I can just imagine them putting together this season and looking at the timeline and saying, okay, I mean, this debate, basically what Dobby Weller said, the creator is that the season is structured around the times in which the Schlafly movement and the, the pro ERA movement sort of touched each other. And, uh, you know, this Betty Phyllis debate is definitely one of those points of contact. And so it makes sense that this is the Betty, um, episode, but um you know they're not quite all that easy there are a few debates that are sort of no brainers as to who to highlight when but there are other instances like when we have a bella movement or when moment or when we have a Jill Ruckelshaus moment etc um that are a little bit more uh you know uh, give, you know up to creative license uh as to as to when that goes in there so there's just so much about this show that is so well perfectly researched and uh, replicated. But one of the things that I know that they, that they really had to generate out of whole cloth is a lot of the Phyllis Schlafly behind the scenes stuff. Um, because, you know, one of their main sources is actually the Eagle Eagle archive, the Phyllis Schlafly archive. So you like a lot of the video or documents that I've been trying to go look up to see, did this really happen? How did this happen? You can find on the Schlafly archives, actually, but it's this home life stuff with the Schlafly household that I think they really needed to, you know, and, and for the Fredan household too, I'm sure, but like that they really had to get into. And so when you see this conversation between Phyllis Schlafly and her followers about the John Birch society and this accusation that she's, you know, sort of—is she racist? You know, what's going on here? You see, like some hints of of doubt from Sarah Paulson's character, Alice. Um, this they have to sort of generate, but I think it it doesn't feel at all blown out of proportion. It feels really uh, grounded. What do you What do you make of this of this like John Birch Society and and how it touches the Schlafly movement here?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, the Birch society stuff, um, you know, it's an old organization, but it really, um, m- my understanding is it really kind of came to power, uh, in a really influential way in the seventies and eighties. Um, and is kind of bircherism is now sort of, um, thought to be the sort of genesis point of the Trump administration. Um, in it's, you know, kind of embracing conspiracy theory. It's heavily anti-government, you know, or at least anti-communism or socialism as they see it, but really anti-federal government. Um, you know, and, and it's fringy. Um, and I think, you know, I think as it relates to Schlafly and the Stop ERA movement, I understand that, you know, we have a big star attached. She's producing. She's great in it. It's really interesting to see a rounded human version of a sort of, you know, a, a great, for some people, villain of the recent past. Um, but I do, I will be curious to see how audiences, um, kind of accept that humanizing you know in in this episode um we see phyllis both struggle to reconcile um the fact that yes it's bad pr for some in some senses to have these associations with these extreme right groups but on the other hand some of her members are part of them and they have power you know and i think that what we've seen in the four episodes so far is really about schlafly Uh, i mean in the show's version of things kind of bartering away bits and bits of her um principle Mm -hmm. in order to Mm -hmm. succeed and i think that's a really interesting thing at the same time i think there will be people out there and maybe i'm one of them to some extent who are like you know what she does not deserve this humanizing treatment because like if you really read about her and, and, and listen to interviews with her. Like she believed all of this stuff to her bones. You know, this was not about sort of expedience, political expediency. Um, I don't really have an answer either way about like how the show's treating it, but I think it, it does present an interesting dialogue. Um, and I think is probably why it poses such a, you know, alluring challenge to an actor like Kate Blanchett. Um, because my hunch is that she's going to, you know, be the villain at the end, but right now they're trying to, um, I think successfully calibrate that villainy in a, in a human way.
4: Yeah. I I mean, it's definitely about the bedfellows, you know, that she feels like she has to embrace in order to build her coalition and how that, what that does to erode her, you know, moral high ground. Um, I, I hear what you're saying and I, and I have seen that response as well. And I guess my question to that is like, what's, what is more villainous? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer. Actually genuinely believing all of this to your bones or, you know, absorbing messages of hatred uh, and inequity in order to get ahead in life, even if you don't believe in them?
3: Well, I think, you know, that's a huge question that we have now. You know, I think that yeah. for me, one of the prime examples is someone like Ivana, uh, Ivanka Trump. Where it's like, well, no, she's from New York. She went to these schools. There's no way she believes any of this stuff. And it's like, but she has let her father in, in administration she works for mm-hmm. embrace them in order to get things done, I guess, or to, or simply to rule, to have power. And so is the kind of complicit, uh, stuff, it, it to me, it kind of flattens out to being the same thing, you know, because yeah, y- even if you don't spout out the, the, act- the rhetoric, um, you're 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 building a foundation on that rhetoric anyway. So you're using it either passively or actively, but either way, you're using it.
4: Something I love that is um, the the genius reflection of this birtherism conversation around Phyllis Schlafly and her members um, is this pitch meeting at Miss Magazine uh where, you know, one one member wants to write about Phyllis Schlafly and Gloria, you know, as her editor is like, basically don't feed the trolls, right? Is Gloria's attitude. Uh It's a very familiar one. Like, don't... It, once again, we can't help but bring parallels to Trump where I just remember people saying, like, don't take him seriously. It's not worth taking seriously. And then it was, like, too late, uh, you know, by the time people were taking him seriously kind of thing. Yeah. Think, but you have that sorry go ahead. Yeah,
3: I, I think that that to me is the most interesting dynamic of this episode in particular, um mm. which is this inner movement conflict, movement conflict about do we recognize Schlafly or not. And mm-hmm. they're both sides make a good case. Um and I think that, you know, because should this person be met on stage and had their have their beliefs confronted and called out and 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 asked to provide, you know, Facts and data and all that stuff, sure, yes. But also unfortunately, one side of thing tends to be better at the jujitsuing than the other. You know, and the mm-hmm. right is really good at an provoking attack. And then all when they're attacked saying, oh, well, well I mean, look at this person's, you know, this person's crazy. Oh, triggered, you're a snowflake, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, you know, you're a crazy liver or whatever. You know, they're very good at that. And um, I think it's just so easy to play into those hands. I mean, I think about um, in the current day, uh, someone like Tommy Lahren or Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens, all of these people who should not be famous, should not be these kind of leading lights of a certain sect of the, the right, the far right movement or whatever. But they are partly or largely because on Twitter and elsewhere, people on the left kept going at them and responding to them and raising their profile and raising their profile and raising their profile. And then all of a sudden they were National political celebrities, you know, and I, I can see Steinem's, you know, in, in a very different context, very pre internet, all that. I can see her hesitancy to do exactly that. And at the same time, I can also be sympathetic to Friedan, where it's like, but this person is getting momentum. We have to meet that momentum and confront it. Um, and so I think we don't really know the answer to how to deal with these things, you know, trolls exist, but how do we acknowledge that reality?
4: Well, I mean, the same thing is true. I was, I was reading um, a post actually that Damon Lindelof put up on it, on his Instagram about how he was at the women's march, uh, in January in Los Angeles and there were about 25,000 people participating, according to him. And he was like, meanwhile, he's like, but this was considered this year in 2020. He's like, but this was considered like a, you know, a, a, a light turnout and it was relative to, you know, two years previous or whatever. He was like, meanwhile, <laughs> about 5,000 people total have been protesting around the country around the, like, way in which we've, you know, the, the coronavirus has closed down, uh, you know, the country effectively. And they're getting so much more airtime. Like that, if you were just sitting at home, you would think that movement was so much larger than this other movement because of the way the media is covering it and not just the media, but like social media. And so it is, it's all about perspective. And in putting Phyllis Schlafly up on stage with Betty Friedan, the quote unquote mother of the movement, you're giving her equals stature. Um, and it, and it, it is a problem. I don't know the right answer. Just like you, I don't think I know the right answer because I don't know if like, Turning a blind eye until it's too late, uh, to fully address a movement is the right move either. That being said, so I was, I was trying to find the, the, if there was any like video footage of this debate that happens in Illinois. Um, I saw, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, newspaper coverage, um, you know, and she, Betty Friedan did say that thing about burn you at the stake. That is a thing that she said at this debate, but I couldn't find video, but I did find video. Phyllis Schlafly and, um, Betty Friedan debating the ERA on Good Morning America, uh, in 1976. So a couple years later. Um, and once again, this is on the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles YouTube page. That's where you find, like, all this stuff. They are the archive. And, um, I mean, I, I, I have no questions as to why this is on their YouTube page because Phyllis is, like, is, has the upper hand rhetorically at every turn and Betty is so flustered and it's, it's painful to watch because it's painful to watch a debate where you agree ideologically with the person who is not the more successful debater in this context, you know, and Phyllis Lafley, one of her, her like villainous superpowers is like her composure, you know? And so she does this thing, you know, I'm zooming ahead to the debate, but she does this thing at the end of the debate where, you know, Betty loses her cool, and we're all like, oh, no, when it happens. And then, you know, Phil Schlafly gets to just, like, simper and say, like, well, you just made my point for me about the intemperance of the movie, you know? And it's like, you're like, oh, no. And this happens all the time still with with people that I admire losing their cool uh, in debates and political debates. A- and so, it
3: opens no. the door for people who, um, you know, are, are sort of wishy-washy on things, you know, maybe... I agree with the women's movement, but that Friedan has always kind of rankled me, you know? And then all of a sudden you see, I mean, I'm imagining some viewer in the seventies, you see this thing and it's like, oh, well, okay, there you go. Now I have reason. Like here's, here's, here's concrete proof of why I never liked Betty Friedan. And in doing, in, in sort of finding that proof, you kind of to some extent are siding with Schlafly. You know, um, and and, and it, so it becomes a sort of personality thing where, you know, we see that in presidential politics and elsewhere, but like where the personality can oftentimes uh, win out in terms of priority over the actual principle. And, and I think that, you know, we need look not very far in terms of Hillary Clinton to see how that can manifest itself pretty um, disastrously on, uh, you know, uh, pl- the political stage absolutely i mean hillary um, did win the the uh, you know popular vote so
4: <laughs> she, also, she, she won the popular vote and she did not lose her cool in anywhere no. like any like incredibly did not lose her cool in the same way but it, it didn't matter in the end um so to, to go back to that miss magazine pitch meeting though like um the other thing that happens in that meeting which is the you know is the more uh, perfect mirror of of the bircherism conversation is this efforts by um margaret one of the writers uh, for *Miss* Magazine to pitch this um article on tokenism. And this is just one of the funniest things. I mean, funniest and depressing things I've ever seen in my life uh, is this group of white women being like, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And you don't mean us, right? Like, well, I mean, you don't feel that way here, right? That you're being, and I, I don't understand what you mean. And it's just like these well-meaning uh, or maybe not so well meaning idiots. Um, and Margaret sort of just, you know, slapping a smile on her face and being like, Oh no, I didn't mean you sort of thing. That is, that is what Mrs. America is forcing us to do, right? Is just to acknowledge the not just deficits, but like damaging aspects of a movement, um, that a lot of us largely see as, as positive,
3: you know? Well, right. And I think that, you know, um, that, that important sort of, self-conception of people who um you know consider themselves on you know the right side of politics especially on the left in terms of identity politics which i'm not saying that identity politics are bad i think they are just politics but like i think there there can be a sense of like among you know a certain generation of let's say white feminists or of white gay rights activists or whatever who are like Really don't like to um, be confronted with the, uh, the the fact that they are not exactly on the vanguard of um, right. the movement in a way. You know, well, what, what do you mean? I have to consider that now. I don't. I, but I'm I'm kind of, I'm leading the charge here. You know, I'm I'm working at Ms. Mag- Magazine. Please don't like you know, trouble my, my, my view of myself with exactly. this, this, this yeah. thing, you know, you know what I mean? And I think, I think that that's an interesting um, and sad dynamic um, that, uh, you know, I, I think it's good that the show is showing those warts. It's not a hagiography hey, about Steinem or or the magazine or Friedan or Bell Absook. It's, it's being like, well, yeah, they were, they did a lot of good things, but also they were clearly gaping flaws in the um, in the fabric of the, of the movement at the time.
4: So the, the that's the shot and then the chaser is this sort of um party salon that the character Flo Kennedy played by the great Nancy Nash um and Margaret Sloan Hunter is the full name of that woman played by Bria Henderson and so they're at this party um that Flo Kennedy a, a real life uh you know figure so is Margaret Sloan Hunter um Flo Kennedy used to throw these Sundays Sundays at Flows uh is what she called them these like gatherings of um black women to discuss uh, you know events and we we see flow um a- attack flaws in her own movement here um because there are women at this party who are who are uh dismissive of margaret for a couple of reasons number one um because she's gay and number two this idea that working with white feminists at all is uh you know a defeat um, I will, for, I wrote it down. I will forever cherish the phrase horizontal hostility, mm-hmm. um, from, from Flo, from Nisi Nash. Um, and this is just an incredible, incredible scene that once again, it's just like, I just really value this show showing the cracks in every single pocket, uh, every single community of this movement.
3: I mean, they show that there's not a hundred percent cohesion on the other side, but it's a lot more in lockstep, you know, and, um, if if a movement you know it needs many heads it, it needs to have move in a different to many different directions it needs to have intersectional considerations all that stuff the problem is the great problem of american politics is that like there generally tends to be another side that is much more moving as a monolith and um that is i think why the struggle for all of these good things equality civil rights all that has is so difficult it's because um, we're trying to satisfy we. I say we, but like you know, the, the the right side of things is trying to satisfy as many people as possible, whereas the other side just wants their thing confirmed.
4: Exactly, and the 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 final chapter of this storyline um, is you know sees Flo come to Shirley Chisholm. Played by Uzo Dubo and uh, discuss the idea of founding the National Black Feminist Organization, which she did. Uh, There's this funny little moment there where she says like, Oh yeah, two years. Uh, two years, then they'll be over it. Uh, the the National Black Feminist Organization did, in fact, last from 1973 to 1975. Um, but this is an organization that was founded, uh, quote unquote, to address ourselves to the particular and specific needs of the larger but almost cast aside half of the black race in America, the black woman. Um, and so this is the way in which the movement is schisming, and then the way in which certain members of the movement are trying to hold all those pieces together because you see Gloria, like see this flyer with Shirley on it and, you know, think about Margaret and offer her offices and Margaret's like, yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you very much. I've, I've had my bad experience here. Thank you so much. Um, you know, and, and all of that. And exactly. It's that kind of um, infighting, which happens in almost every leftist movement. That, you know, ultimately winds up hurting us over and over again. This is again, it's sort of similar to what you're saying with Tracy Ullman, where like Nisi Nash is this incredible comedian and she is capable of just like really broad, high comedy. Um, but here she is, um, just as she did, she does in her show Claws on TNT, like, um, given a real role. She's funny, but she's also just like really chewing into it in a way that's extremely satisfying
3: yeah and she gets to lay out you know in a kind of funny aphoristic way the the struggle at the heart of this and there's no answer for it but she's like you know i know what a difference between a shoe and a lawnmower uh they both have uses but i don't i'm not mistaking one for being the other um, and I think, you know, I think that is kind of the complicated way that we have to look at these things, um, that anyone in a, in a progressive movement has to look at things. There's no perfect answer for who to align with and how to agree and how to compromise and all that stuff. Of course not. Um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm much more likely to take that kind of advice from, from her than I am, you know, maybe from, uh, for Dan, I guess in this kind of scheme of this episode. But anyway, yeah, Nisi Nash is great. And if people want to see more of her beyond this, beyond Claws, beyond Reno 911, which I believe is now going to be on new episodes on Quibi, which is kind of crazy. um, Watch, yeah. um, getting on the amazing, amazing, amazing uh, HBO show b- adapted from a, a British series. That's, but you Nash is on that and she is really excellent.
4: Let's hit on Gloria before we wind up the episode with uh, Betty and Phyllis and which, you know, this, this thing happens to Gloria in this episode, just as, you know, Nora Ephron is defending her in columns and Esquire and Betty is resenting her because, you know, she's so beautiful and adored. Um That beauty is, you know, being turned back on her um with this, Lewd pornographic, um, image of herself that was a, was a, a real thing that happened. Um, once again, in the, uh, Steinem documentary, you can see Gloria Steinem talk about it. Um, but basically, um, Al Goldstein, who was a pornographer, um, tacked up this poster outside of the Miss offices that had a naked, uh, drawing of, Gloria with a bunch of, um, you know, penises around it. And it was called like pin the cock on the feminist. Um, and you know, this is a thing that Gloria talks about. One of many things that happened to her in terms of being attacked for her looks, um, in, in a way you don't expect. And, uh, Al Goldstein, I was like, I was looking up some information, on Al Goldstein and, and one of his like, listen is one of his memorable quote unquote quotes, um, is when asked what he planned to give feminist writer Gloria Steinem for Christmas, he said syphilis. So like, this is the kind of just tremendous human being we're dealing with here. Uh-huh. Um But in that, um in that uh, documentary, Gloria, in her own words, Gloria Steinem recalls exactly what Bella Abzug uh, in this episode says, which is like your body and my labia or whatever. And in, in a way that like, just made her improbably laugh at a moment when she felt extremely dehumanized and attacked.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, I I think that when considering uh, the free speechy, porny kind of people in the seventies, I think my head tends to go to Larry Flint, who, you know, is sort of a, to some, a hero of the free speech movement. Um, and you don't really seem, I haven't really thought about the people who traded in that kind of smutty humor kind of thing, like really actively working against things like this kind of depicts. So I I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's grim. I mean, but, um, I think it's a, a crucial detail in terms of understanding, um, the, the ways that. Steinem was victimized during this I mean maybe it was different from the way other women in the movement were but um, you know they were all they were getting it they were getting assailed really from all sides in all ways
1: We've all been there before You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming
4: Uh, I live in a very small one bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point
1: I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.
2: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.
4: This is, I think, a great opportunity for us to hear from Rose Byrne. I wanted to start by asking you, you know, I think arguably Gloria Steinem is the most... Um, famous or well, still well-known figure of this movement uh, in this series. How much were you aware of um, Gloria Steinem and her legacy when you took the role?
0: Like everyone, I mean, she's this like comic, you know, kind of legendary figure at this point of feminism. Yeah, second wave feminism, and so I knew her. I knew her, but I was I was not intimately. As informed as I am now, (laughs) but my so to answer your question, it was more broad. It was much more the broad strokes that I knew about her when I started. I said to Darby, "Where do we begin?" Because there's just so much information to read, and I was like, "What?" It was very specific period, and it's this ten-year period that we were focusing on, so that narrowed it down. But she started me off. She sent me this great package of. of information in this huge PDF.
4: Was there anything, you know, in, in that archival information in those interviews, was there anything that, that proved particularly illuminating to you in terms of being able to access her as, a, as more of a human and less of an icon? Well,
0: I suppose, you know, the scrutiny that you're under in the public eye, I know a little bit about it, but not that much I'm not, you know, whatever. The, the, the scrutiny that she was under was far more of a larger magnitude than I've ever experienced but I know that you the sort of process of it and what it takes from you and what it costs and but someone like her which is like she was married to the movement my all my question was always like what is what does this cost her you know and that's always interesting to me and that's what I like seeing in a biopic too because anything that's a puck piece is just dull you know you don't want to be a, it's not interesting to watch and that's very hard with biopics to I was kind of like you want to honour the person, but you also you want to you know understand, and you want them to be complex and flawed. So that was always my interest in it. And um, but to answer your question, I think the the interviews. Honestly, I just could not believe the amount of she was just had a lot of vitriol. She was a polarizing figure, much more than I realized. Like really polarizing for women and for men, but for feminists and for anti feminists obviously, but within the feminist movement too. Betty Friedan, I mean she, <laughs> she was uh she was tough on Gloria. So that was really an eliminating to me, thinking like you have to have a pretty thick skin to just get up again at the end of the day and you know, not fall apart. And and she never she's she she's famously quite unflappable, you know. She's, she has a very different style to the Betty Boans, to the Bella Absols, to the Circe She's far more um, contained and composed, and uh, her powers is a far more sort of subtle, quiet power. Um, but power, nonetheless.
4: You you mentioned the the Playboy Bunny story. I mean, I think one element of Gloria Steinem and something that the show doesn't shy away from is, you know, how her, her personal beauty played into the role she played in the feminist movement. Mm-hmm. I think, you you know, we hear about in the first episode mm-hmm. where they're like, well, I understand why some women are feminists, but why Gloria Steinem? She's so pretty. She could get a man. Why is she a feminist, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how, yeah. how aware do you feel like she was of, of her personal beauty and its ability to mean something uh different to the movement.
0: Well, from her writing, she's always, she doesn't lean into it. She doesn't sort of talk about it that much offhandly, like here or there. She'll comment on someone's comment on her or something like that, but she doesn't, she doesn't dwell on it herself ever, which I think is interesting. She never sort of dedicates a chapter in her book about my this or that, or my, you know, what people think of how I look or anything like that. Like she's, which is, she's, she's so talked about like that, and she never, she doesn't give it any weight or time of day. Um, in from her own personal writings, from what I read, and um, I could be wrong, but the research I did, she never <laughs> sort it up. But I, I love the way Darby deals with it because it's very witty. It's, but it's very. Um, I don't think the show ever. I, I objectifies her ever, but the people in the show do, the characters in the show do. So right. it addresses it, but it never is from a male gaze. I don't think it, it was a part of her story. It was a, it was a, absolutely a part of her, of her journey was being like an it girl, really, and then becoming the face of this movement and stepping into that. But I, you know, I, I think women are just under such, such more scrutiny. You know, you're too pretty, and not pretty enough. Constant barrage of scrutiny that you're under as a woman to do with your looks at men like they they just don't have that same treatment. Like yeah, I love that comment that Bella outside like, makes at the beginning when she's like, you know, think they cared that he was really handsome and also you know, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cared about it. So um I think it, it the close the show is in a very important way I think highlights that um sort of standard.
4: Yeah and I mean, you know, her her um, her beauty aside, she is, you know, stylishly an icon- There's iconography about her, her hair, the glasses, the whole thing. It's such mm. an iconic look. Um, for you as a performer, mm. you know, what is something like that Gloria Steinem wig or, you know, any, any of these things that mm. are just sort of like iconic to slip into. How does that help you, mm. uh, as a performer access the character?
0: I um, mean, it was essential trying to get. I just kept saying the silhouette. We have to get her silhouette. It's all awesome. it's just so iconic—the silhouette of the hair, the glasses, the the clothing. It's immediately you know it's recognisable, and that to me was I just was obsessed with it. Like <laughs> the silhouette, where is it, where is it, and how she moved. She was so graceful. She was she has a background as a dancer, and there's there's an innate sort of sensuality in Gloria. You know, she's she's you know always. Uh, I think just had that access of the centralness to her that's very not, um, fabricated or forced. It's just sort of part of her communication and personality and was trying to sort of capture that as well. Um, so it was hugely important to do that. And I really want to get that Marcial, who designed my wigs, he, he designed all of Glenn's wigs, Glenn Close's wigs. And I immediately called Glenn. I was like, I have to. <laughs> have I, I got to get his last name for you because he's legendary. And I was like, he's, and he doesn't he doesn't work that much. He lives um, pretty remotely, so um, but he did it for me. So <laughs> I don't know if I can. You know, we can't do it. We got to get it right. So <laughs> it was really fun. I think it's fun. It was so fun to to do that, and it informs everything. It informs how you walk and talk, and you know all of it, it informs all of the performance.
4: I love the idea of you calling, like, Glenn Close's, uh, you know, a reclusive wig maker to be like, please, I need oh, a yeah. wig.
0: And they all knew. They're like, oh, Marcel, yeah, of course, let's we'll see if he'll do it. You know, like, he's very particular and specific because he's that good. And, um... And he did win. I mean, he won all other weeks, but he did her week for damages, which was just like flawless.
4: So, I I wanted to ask you um, one thing. I find really interesting about the depiction of Gloria in this series, uh, and her legacy in general, is her particular efforts to make sure that the feminist movement is an inclusive movement uh, particularly to black women um and i was wondering if you could talk about sort of what you discovered in your research um on her and what discussions you had around that those efforts of inclusivity
0: and also to lesbian yes. women which was yes. Betty Ford's great falling out that she you know was quite you know her feminism was was um, was born of a different era and a different time so there was always that tension, um, between them. I think I, ideologically they were very different. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that, yeah, I feel like it's, it's hard. The conversation around black feminism is still obviously happening, happening and complicated and complex. And, um, it, it we touched on it in the show very specifically. Um, you know, it touches on now that the fact of having intersectionality, which I don't think was really, that is something that Darby sort of, um, addresses and grows attempts to sort of try to achieve that and her, you know, fa- failures at that and her successes at that and, and all of it coming from a really idealistic place, Like she's the most compassionate person and, you know, she's all about inclusivity, but sometimes it's, uh, it's more complicated than she thinks.
4: There's this incredible um, sequence at the end of episode two with the, uh, you know, the, th- the dancing and the remembering of her own, uh, experience with abortion earlier in her life. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about filming that sequence and sort of what, what was in your head, um, as you were putting that together. It
0: was, it was a lot of fun. You know, the dancing stuff. I had a tra I had a tap dancing trainer <laughs> who anyway, I relied on heavily, uh, up in Toronto. Um, so we spent the better half of two months trying to practice that dance. Um and uh unlike Gloria, I'm not a trained dancer, and i <laughs> took every effort in my <laughs> in my uh brain to get try to get that right um and uh initially reading the script it's um it they it didn't read like that that was part of the edit so when I saw it that they had sort of inter interwoven that those two the flashback and the present day was just so moving and so heartbreaking and uh, I was really taken aback when I watched it. I, I thought it was really powerful the way they the way they um, they they put that together.
4: Yeah, and I was I was talking to Davi about how I mean you know it's really striking when you watch um, this series. Of course, how much hasn't changed or progressed uh in the decades since these conversations were being had um but then there's also just moments Mm -hmm. of of really beautiful triumph that i actually i you know i cried multiple times um watching watching this series was there anything that was particularly any moment that was particularly um emotional for you to to film or or see in the finished product it was
0: very emotional when we filmed um Joey Chisholm up on stage with all the other nominees um that day was really took us all aback we were all in floods of tears it was very emotional yeah Uh, I I can't quite describe the feeling I mean obviously it's obviously why just this incredible image of all these men and this one woman who's also a woman of color it was really extraordinary really extraordinary and um and also filming the scene at the Houston Convention when um, the lesbian rights is, is is passed on the floor, and um, and we start singing "We Shall Overcome." That was also very emotional. Yeah, those sort of big group sequences and moments, um, groundbreaking moments in in the decade, were. were Really took
4: on a lot of that on I was talking to Kate about playing Phyllis and you know I, I know it's it's the it's the job of the performer to find empathy for whoever they're playing uh no matter who they're playing uh but you know Kate was saying yeah. uh, it was really tough uh sometimes with Phyllis to 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 figure out how to be on her side uh, you know Gloria is obviously a, an easier person to to empathize with to to be on her side but was there anything that was particularly tough about her for you to access as a performer
0: I suppose for just trying to find that power within her stillness you know she has such a power but it is within this sort of stillness and within a certain control um, and that 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 there's an element of the steeliness there that I feel like that that is that was challenging at times to try to access that in scenes where there was conflict or um but i think that's probably what if that's what you're feeling that's what you're supposed to feel but um that's my kind of belief anyway as a performer but um but that 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 was definitely challenging yeah and also sometimes my hair was just in my face (laughs) (laughs) challenging as well i was like how did she do everything and also she always had these incredibly long nails and i was like how did she do anything with these nails they'd constantly be breaking and i'd be getting more manicures and i was like This is challenging. I'm so she's such a groomed person, and I'm not that way at all. I'm like basically a tomboy, and she's she's a lady. She's truly quite groomed. (laughs) That to me was like such an achievement.
4: Okay, so the you know the flip side of of this um, you know trauma for Gloria is you know everything that Betty is going through from this blind date she goes on to encountering her um husband's new wife um etc setting her up to be particularly vulnerable to a personal attack from Phyllis when it comes to debate time um and i i th- i love this this like the, the first date is really good because like Olman's bringing this like really nervous energy to it uh in a way that I, you know, just try to be dazzling and witty, but also nervy in a way that I really like. But I also love the moment that precedes it, which is her picking her dress for the date. And she picks this dress she wore on the tonight show. This is an actual, you know, appearance that happened that uh, Betty Friedan was on the tonight show in the sixties. They like got the set exactly right. Um, and so she picked this dress from this time when she felt like at the height of her powers uh, to wear to what we presume is a, like a fictionalized um, blind date. And that that just like really, really got me <laughs> um, yeah. th- that juxtaposition. And
3: I think they played up. Well, not played up. I think they played exactly right um, in in the opening scene, but also this scene like and maybe a little bit at the garden party, like she's maybe drinking a little too much. You know, like, like, right, or, or not right. too much, but like she, she, she's tightly wound and is finding a quick way to unwind, you know? Um, and it presents something that is, I mean, it, I think appeals to a sort of reflexive, um, instinct in a lot of people, which is like a kind of like, oh, the messy woman, like, oh, like, like, you know, uh, compare her to Schlafly, who is so ordered and pinned up and, you know, everything is so perfect. And, 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 and Steinem, who has her own sort of verge free flowy kind of version of, you know, aesthetic perfection. Elegance. Yeah. yeah Whereas yeah, yeah. Friedan, and, and, and yet, you know, all of that kind of erratic energy, its source is the same source that, you know, helped bird the movement, you know, and so that, that kind of sad conflict of someone who, you know, bursts something out into the world, but then sort of couldn't, um, at least in this show's estimation, really find footing in her kind of private life, um, is, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a really interesting portrait of, of someone who I kind of have only known as the author of that book.
4: Right, exactly. Um, and it makes you just want to know more and more and more about, or that's my reaction is I want to know more, yeah. and more and more and more about these women. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, on the, on the other side of this debate, uh, Phyllis is preparing and, um, I was watching another Good Morning America, um, interview with Phyllis and Fred Schlafly where she said, um, that he taught her everything she knew about debating. So I think that, you know, that gives credence to this, Behind the scenes, um, debate prep that they're doing, right? Um, this is something that Schlafly said happened. And, um, but, but then everything else there is, of course, fabricated because we don't know that, you know, Fred, you know, personally attacked her and taught her that that's the best way to win a debate. Um, but that's the lesson she takes. And so, you know, he attacks her about her mother, which we already know is a sensitive point for her her mother who worked extremely hard to give Ph- Phyllis what she had. And Kate Blanchette has this incredible post-debate practice scene where she gets her daughter and like throws her into the pool with her and then like cries about it. Um, what I mean, like, I don't know, sometimes I'm watching the show and I'm like, I don't, I, I don't mean to be f- too effusive, but I'm like, I don't know how I got so lucky as like, to get to watch <laughs> Kate Blanchett do things like this on a weekly basis on a TV show. But um I just, I think this is a tremendously powerful, invented uh, encapsulation of, of the internal contradictions of, of Phyllis.
3: Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, on, on the one hand, you obviously, you know, the fact that her mother who had no help after her, You know, the father left and, and, you know, basically afforded Phyllis a a better life, um, at least, you know, economically. Um, You can appreciate that and the gumption it took and you can appreciate that Phyllis appreciates that. Um, At the same time, I think that scene uh fall short of which is good of turning it into this kind of like oh well they're okay they you know we've cracked it open like that's why Phyllis cares and you know we we should we should it we should be easier on it what what the show kind of i think really highlights there is that like she has a deep appreciation for women who do this but now that it worked for her she wants to stop it you know
4: Cl- close the door behind close her the
3: door behind her pull the ladder up but also in a in a very blinkered way that i think a lot of conservative ideology does is Assume that you can sort of prescribe a mandate on the world and thus order everything into its perfect shape. You know, which is impossible. You can't do that. The best you can do and what the progressive side argues for, I think, is to make it as easy for people to live the lives that they are living individually rather than, um, say, well, no pornography and no this and no that and women in the home because that is my idealized version of how my life worked. And so therefore it must be prescriptive for everybody. You know, so I think you see that the, the, both the internal struggle of, of Sloughly while also remembering that her, her broader politics, like, really shut down that opportunity for a lot of people. Um, And that she doesn't seem to notice that contradiction or does and doesn't really care uh, is something I think at root of that, that character.
4: Right. It's why she's so fascinating. One of the many reasons why she's so fascinating. And and maybe that sounds like, as you said earlier, too much, uh, you know, interest to give to a woman who did so much damage to the women's movement. But I do, I do find that internal contradiction, Incredibly fascinating and especially the way that Kate Blanchett plays it. Um, let's hit one more parenting thing with Phyllis before we head to the debate, which is that we get, you know, you, you had mentioned earlier that you uh, were aware of the fact that Phyllis Schlafly's son was a gay man and you were wondering if the show would touch on it. Um, this is sort of like our f- first most meaningful foray into that in that, you know, John Schlafly is, uh, Earnestly and emotively playing the organ for his friend Tommy, who's getting married, and it's very clear that John has emotions around that. And Phyllis, and it does not escape Phyllis's uh, notice. I mean, who um,
3: among yeah. us has not shot <laughs> Mooney looks at a man in uniform while playing a pipe organ? It's just a common experience, uh,
4: right of passage, right mm-hmm. of passage. There, so yeah. Um, I mean, that there's more to come on that, but like, do you have any thoughts on on this early? Um, you know.
3: Well, I think just going back to what I just said is that like Phyllis is order is fighting for a sort of ordered, idealized American family life. When right in her own house, uh there is a deviance from that, you know. Right. And I think it'll be interesting to see how she kind of reconciles that with what she's trying to do. I mean, I think that that really what this boils down to. I think in terms of this, you know, emerging portrait of Phyllis Schlafly is it's really a desire for power and control. And this is the outlet she chose. Um, The irony being that the women's rights movement is trying to empower as many women as possible, you know? And so in fighting that she's finding her own personal power at the expense of all else of all others.
4: So that brings us to the debate, where, you know, we've got this great pre debate interaction between Betty and, and Phyllis in the bathroom, this like, Incredibly awkward moment where Betty comes out of the bathroom and is sort of like trying for a second to flirt with Fred. Um, and, and then Phyllis is sort of like on stage, eventual evisceration. I mean, like Betty gets a lot of points on her before this eventual evisceration, but you're just like, you're so, I feel so much for Betty because like she's fleeing the scene even as there are throngs of young women lining up, like wanting her autograph. It's not that she, She's so much more disgrace in her own mind than she is in reality. There's still this huge crowd of people who want to adore her, um, and thank her, and she's just, you know, over overcome with her own perceived failure, um, and that's just, I mean, it's just, it's so well done.
3: Yeah, it's it's well done and it's horrifying because again, like we talked about earlier, it's like. Man, this is how they keep doing this. You know, this is this yeah. is just it's it's just such an effective strategy. You know?
4: Yeah.
3: Um, the bait and then the back away and then they're like, Oh, well, I'm you know, I'm so you know, you may not agree with everything I say, but at least I'm not crazy. At least I'm not some mess, you know, I'm not trying to like cram anything down your throat. All I'm saying is it would be easier if we just kind of had these rules, you know. Um, and it's so sinister. Um, it's you know, Not that J.K. Rowling is an unimpeachable political voice these days, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if part of uh, Dolores Umbridge, Umbridge. who is very Thatcher, obviously, Margaret Thatcher, but like, there's definitely some schlafly in there, for sure.
4: Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So. and then like, you yeah, know, Betty has this asthma attack in the bathroom, which I see as sort of like a mirror of this kind of panic attack that Phyllis had in the pool earlier, you know, and it's just like these women are drowning um, each on their own side of the fight. And it's just its really powerful. And, you know, and then like one of the one of the last things we get is this, I think, very fictional, but nice to see healing phone call between Gloria and Betty, where Gloria says, you know, thank you your book changed my life. Thank you. That she is, you know, one of the throngs of young women who, you know, that Gloria Steinem wouldn't be Gloria Steinem without Betty Friedan, And that needs to be acknowledged and respected.
3: It's a carefully worded scene though, you know, because she says, Oh, you know, if I had been there, I would have, which would have been, you know, tame or something, you know? Uh, And, you know, thank you for writing the book. It changed my Mm -hmm. life. That's all she says. She doesn't say, Okay, now going forward, I'm going to listen to you more. Now going forward, we're, you no, know, you know. Exactly. She, she's basically saying like uh, p- person to person on a private nighttime phone call. I hear you. And thank you for everything. That said, I'm going to keep doing things my way. So I think yeah, it's a, it's a subtle bit of of um, you know, it's not a broad sort of like you're right, I was wrong kind of thing at all.
4: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, the glorious diamond of all, you know, like she, she got her start. One of the things that put her on the map in the first place is this whole, like, she went under cover as a Playboy bunny, um, in, in the Playboy mansion and, or, you know, in the restaurant, I don't know where, but like she was yeah. in the club, in the club. Yeah, there you go. In the club. And, uh, and that is something that I think just forever stuck on her and she couldn't shake it and she was so respected and she fought so hard and she was still undermined her entire life because of of that because of her beauty and then to watch you know betty feel similar frustrations not because she's unattractive because she has her her allure her seductive quality store, but just because she's like so you know, that frenetic energy that we were discussing, that like messiness to her, um, and the frustration she feels around that. And, you know, it's just to watch all these women struggle, um, and, and to see their struggles acknowledged as not lesser than, but, you know, just different struggles that women go through, um, I think is incredibly powerful.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: All right, so this feels like a good time to go to our chat with the great Tracy Olin. Um I've been a have been a huge fan of your of your sketch work for so long, and um, I'm wondering if there's a, a difference in the way in which you approach playing a real life character for something like this versus playing it um, in your sketch work. No,
5: I really just keep things real. I study very hard to grab the reality of people, and I think doing uh, I, I, I like to be funny, but um, I'm not a comedian doing an impersonation. And I've I, I've I've worked very hard to be taken seriously as an actress. And uh, it was hard for me to get this part. There were people that really believed I could do this, and that I that's what I do. And then some people were like, "Oh, is it like an impersonation? Is it like mm-hmm. it's on a certain level? It's not." got The heart, it's not that encompasses It's not the intelligence or the perspective. That's you know, that sort of I'm 60 now, and it was like wow, that you don't get I I can't be Angela Merkel and you know, Judy Dench and Theresa May, and the last show that I did without really being able to do it and believe in them and understand those people. So, um, uh it's harder doing comedy, my God. You write a scene about a man leaving his wife in a drama. Uh, it's a lot harder to make that funny if you do it. <laughs> so no, I don't I don't see any difference. Um, I'm certainly not playing for laughs, I don't even ever try to do that too
4: much. So, for Betty specifically, what is your approach in terms of studying her and and getting into her skin? She's a certain
5: type of American that just fascinates me. Her, her ego and her confidence, and you know, was uh, something that just shone through to me, and I uh, loved her husky voice. And I love that she's not from New York, and I could really hear that. You know, everyone just say, oh, she sounds like she's from New York. She's like a liberal New York. No, she's not. She's from Peoria.
1: <laughs> when
5: you listen to her. She says, our daughters. You know, you can hear that in there. And mm. um, she was so passionate and bohemian. And I think I read The Feminine Mystique when I was in my 20s because I'd read The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which is really the, the European. precursor to all this and uh I just love the way she always looked like herself she didn't ever try to dye her hair or in that scene where she goes on the the Carson show in the 60s and says well my husband had shut my husband up I say the word orgasm 10 times in a row and I love that I thought to have said that sort of stuff in the early 60s which just freaked America out (laughs) So I loved her bravery. I think she was abrasive. I think she 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 ruffled people's feathers and she was tough. I think she was a tough woman.
4: Do you think you know what what benefit is there in the in a movement like this to have a Betty and a Gloria? Well, they were so
5: different, you know, intellectually and well not intellectually, just just physically. I mean it's 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 down with women, it's always physicalities that Count for something, unfortunately, and uh, I think uh, Bet- Bella Abzug mentions that in the series a lot. To, to you know, Gloria, you're going to walk into a room full of senators, and you're going to change their minds because of how you looked, you know. And me and you know, I've always felt that me and Bella, <laughs> Betty and Bella, were of a physical type, and uh, so, and yeah, it took it. it was there was took all sorts, and they were so different. And I think Betty was hard on Gloria. She came 10 years after her and she sort of took over the movement, became the sort of glamorous side of it. And I think Betty had worked long and hard and she was pissed off when they, you know, she was getting the attention and this, uh, all that hair, you know, <laughs> and she says that in her episode. And uh, she was, there's lots of stuff, as you know, on record, you know, of her living. Dissing each other and having disagreements and being very cruel to each other. And Nora Ephron's article about Miami,
4: I read it. I read uh, it. That was tough on Betty. It's nasty. It's
5: nasty. Well, she could be tough, Nora.
4: Mm.
5: You know, she was a brilliant woman. She, but she's she was hard on her. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's almost like Steinem. She was like on Steinem's side or something. But right. uh, it was tough. I mean, women are tough on each other, you know that. My daughter is in politics and she works she's had many jobs and she and she's works for a charity now. She she worked the one job she had when she worked for an all women organization, she was so excited, it's all gonna be all women ma. That was the time the toughest time she ever had? She went, Oh my god, she said I wish there was a few men. She women, all women together were a
4: nightmare. <laughs> I'm curious, you were you were in your early teens uh years overlap with you know the decade that you're covering on the show what was your relationship to the movement at that time as an early teen oh you know I was in
5: England I was a teenager I was a dancer i feminism was a word associated with you know people fellas laughed at girls that said they were feminine I got hairy armpits have you (laughs) you know it just it was like synonymous with being sexless humorless you know you couldn't it was very hard to be a feminist I remember Jermaine Greer uh being on tv a lot at that time and she was kind of sexy and I mean I think it would be would have been great to have had Jermaine Greer in this series um but feminism was though I was too young I was like 16 17 and I I uh but I never felt held back being a girl. I always felt equal to the guys and I, I never played the coquette or dressed to please a man. I was always, you know, I, I, I like being female and feminine but I, I, was, I wasn't angry at men and I never felt held back in my career by men. I did begin to know and I always used female writers and um, production people and all the shows I did. Um, uh, but I never was humorless about guys or like angry at them because that doesn't help, you know. Some of them are useless. They don't get women. And some guys are great. They seem to fall into two categories. Some guys are never going to get it. Mm-hmm. and Some guys are the best. I was married for 30 years to the, a wonderful, wonderful man who totally – got women and respected women and loved women and had women working for him was my biggest fan. So I had this amazing marriage and, um, you know, he was a, a great example of just a guy that got women.
4: Is there a time in your life where you remember, uh, you know, being able to call yourself a feminist, if, if that's something you call yourself and it not being, not feeling like such a big deal?
5: Yeah, I think as I got older and you know, you develop politically as you get older, it's, uh, and you're more comfortable with who you are and, mm-hmm. you know, you, but it doesn't seem to be like, it's not synonymous with hairy armpits and being boring and sexless and right. you know, guys saying, oh, you know, you just need a good man type stuff now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly not that way anymore. Uh, but I don't want to also be one of those women that's just, you know, sometimes within our, the business I'm in, it's just like women in film, women in comedy. What's it like to be a woman doing this? What's it like to be a woman writing this? Right. It, and so I want to keep talking about those differences, you know, women's film festivals, women's, you know, it's just like this, let's keep everyone like, joining in. Let's have some fellas around too. Otherwise, like, you know, what do you want to make just all-female TV shows for? That's never been interesting to me. You know, it's, uh, that's, that's not, you know, that's that's not the way I feel either.
4: Um a big question in this episode is um, whether to ignore Phyllis or whether to confront Phyllis. Um, mm-hmm. And, and Betty felt like it was important to debate Phyllis and, and show expose the holes in her logic. And, you know, Gloria is like, let's not give her that air. Um, mm-hmm. That's still a question. I think that we face all the time. Do you give yeah. someone like this the air or not? Um, you know, What's your instinct? What is the right move here? Yeah.
5: I mean, I think Betty really called it early on finish. Lovely. She figured out she was a threat to them and she was, she would build her base of um, housewives because Betty knew this type of woman more than I think people like Gloria and Bella did being from like liberal, you know, bubbles in a way like New York. I think cause she was from Peoria. She knew these kind of women. She knew their power of organizing. Um, and she didn't want to challenge her. I think probably she took her on to sort of prove to the girls that she could do it. She was still the leader of the movement, um, and she did give her credence. And then uh, it fell foul of her because the debate scene, which you see is the culmination of the episode, I mean, I read the transcripts so of that wasn't televised. Good Morning America debate was. So you can see Betty loses it with Phyllis. Phyllis is very smart. She's eloquent. She's she has one couple of you know talking points and she sticks to them and she just frustrated the hell out of Benny and if you read the transcripts of that debate, Bay it, it's she's got everyone on her side it's a wonderful audience for her it's all those young women who are liberated and educated and and then it, the very end you know she's saying all this good stuff and get a good response and Phyllis is sort of just sticking to her message with floundering a bit and then she calls her an Uncle Tom female Uncle Tom and I want to burn you at the stake and what gets remembered from the whole thing, those lines. Right. None of the debate that happened before. So Betty had a temper, and she let her get to her, and uh, she didn't handle it very well. It, you know, it, but that's a lovely part of the episode. You see her fail... And of course, you, we didn't see the private side of them so much, you know. And and then to imagine her going home to her apartment in New York and feeling terrible and knowing she floundered, and then having Gloria call her at the end is in, and saying, you know, you meant a lot to me, and to be to sympathise with her was, uh, I mean, it's a that's the great writer that Darby Waller is to imagine that that's what might have happened. It's, it's just lovely women helping other women, and just when you're down, you know, and saying. Right. Well, happen to any of us the woman drives it crazy but uh she did try she did recognize the the threat of phyllis before any of them did but handled it badly herself
4: yeah I, I watched that good morning america uh debate and it was it was so upsetting to see someone you agree with ideologically still seem to lose a debate you know yeah, and frustrating and yeah. Um, yeah, um, I'm wondering if behind the scenes, you know, sometimes uh, in projects like this, um, performers prefer to maintain their on-screen relationship sort of off-camera to you know not stay fully in character. But I'm wondering what your relationship was like with the other actresses on this show, or did you sort of self-isolate to get sort of Betty's isolation from these women? Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I never, I, I mean, I don't, I sort of stay in character when I'm mm-hmm.
4: dressed up because it's fun. I
5: like talking to the crew and people sometimes as my, the people I have become. Like, you right. know, from the show I do is, you know, I, I mean, there's nothing more charming than talking to the crew or there's Judy Dench. They, <laughs> love, it. they love it. They'd rather I be like Judy. Um, so. No, we got on great as a group of women and actresses. I mean, I was so proud to be. I think I was the last one cast, and they gave me such a tough time casting you. Um, to be in that group was fabulous, and we all lived in Toronto, and we all had visited each other's houses, and we all still get on great now. We've all been Zoom. My first Zoom was with all of them: with <laughs> Mark, Owen, Rose, and Ari, and Sarah. Um, and no, I didn't. I mean, I. I wasn't sort of like the one set apart. I mean, that, like that scene at the barbecue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the odd thing was actually when all of us livers would be on the set because they, and then we'd see one of the Phyllis women coming for like a wig fitting or a makeup test. And there'd be these like blonde people at the <laughs> other <laughs> end of the room. you go, it's a Phyllis person. <laughs> it so odd, you know, to us. They were like Stepford wives to us. Um, <laughs> So, but that was the, another lovely part of this show, the way we all got on. I've never worked on a production where there were so many women as the leads and female, you know, our director of photography is a woman and the, uh, so many female directors and directors of colour and it was fabulous. It was, but not overwhelmingly so, you know, it wasn't like, we're the girls, we're just going to do everything. wasn't that. It was so... Uh, one of the greatest, nicest jobs I've ever done actually.
4: I really enjoyed it. Um, and my last question to you and thank you again so much for your time and the work is um, do you think do you think the ERA still matters? Because I've heard people, very leftist feminist people, say it doesn't matter anymore. But do you feel like it still matters? Is it something we should still be fighting for? Yeah, it would
5: be nice to see it completed. It would be nice closure, wouldn't it? After all these years, if Virginia ratifies and Yeah. I mean, it does. It, things have changed so much. And the things that it was based on all those years ago don't quite that aren't quite around anymore. But no, I think it does matter. It's a symbolic thing now. It would be terrific. They fought so hard for it, these women. They went through murders for us. You know, in the generation before, the suffragettes, what they went through. You know, you've got to value. These are hard-won rights. And if we lose them, it's tragic. You know, it's that you just can't take them for granted. You know, the right to choose and everything. It's under threat and it's... This was... Fought, we fought hard for these things and in this country too and if it slips away it's we can't believe it's going to slip away and then when it does you think oh my goodness we've got to get back out there again right and I don't want to have to do that we have to treasure what we've they've achieved for us so I have such respect for this generation I really do.
4: Excellent. Well thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Um, it's to talk. I'm glad we figured out the technical oh, stuff. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Worked out the kinks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well that brings us to the end of our discussion of episode four. Um, which uh is the first of a few debates we'll see uh, next week is a four-way debate Phyllis and Fred and Brenda and Mark um, <laughs> where uh, Phyllis Schlafly and her husband debate sort of the a liberal uh, superstar team um, and we'll see how that pans out for them. Until then, Richard, where can folks find you?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rylaws and I'm covering TV and film at VF.com.
4: Find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This and at VandyFair.com and maybe watching some Mary Tyler Moore. Oh yeah, good in call free time. <laughs>
1: Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.